every deal is done in the secret. So nobody knows exactly how much Google or Facebook are paying Rupert Murdoch's news corp. So I think we have to be very careful that powerful people with a lot of money are going to be backing lawsuits that are designed to either put news organizations out of business altogether or to keep them from prying into things that the public really needs to know. Welcome to the Media Jungle video podcast. I'm your host, Alex Regeer, coming to you every week to break down the business behind the news industry, the future of media and the creator economy. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter and YouTube channel. And don't forget to leave to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, we appreciate your support. On this episode, I'm joined with Bill Gruskin, professor at Columbia Journalism School, formerly Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Miami Herald, and a contributor for Columbia Journalism Review. Making Google and Facebook pay. Last year, Australia passed the News Media Bargaining Code, forcing Google and Facebook to actually pay content creators. They've had a duopoly on digital ads for years, but they've never had to pay for content. Australia News Media got over $150 million in one year because of the law. Canada and UK are already working on their own versions. The question is, will this happen in the US? Stay tuned. So, Bill, uh, do you, what did you learn over this uh, trip to Australia and how does this, how, how do you see this affecting what legislators do in the U.S.? I have the great good fortune to spend a few months over this year in Australia, thanks to the Judith Nielsen Institute of Journalism, which sponsored me there. Um, oh, that's and nice. I spent much of that time looking into something called, as you said, the news media bargaining code, which was passed a little over a year ago as a way of trying to force Facebook and Google to pay some kinds of funds to news organizations, large and small. And they came up with a really interesting way of doing it. Rather than saying, we're going to impose a tax on Facebook and Google, or, or we're going to force you to pay company X this much, and company Y that much, what they said was, you have to do deals with these news media companies. And if you don't, then we could uh, eventually force you to do what's called baseball arbitration, which is where each side makes an offer and the arbitrator gets to pick one or the other. So, and that's what they use in, in baseball. And it's a way of making sure that both sides submit a pretty honest offer. So that really kind of um, uh, put Facebook and Google into the crosshairs. And even as the legislation was being passed and certainly afterwards, they started doing a bunch of deals with companies as big as the Rupert Murdoch News Corp to uh, very small daily newspapers or a coalition of daily and weekly newspapers. So and basically because that that way of negotiating is good because it makes the big it makes because both parties want a deal. Facebook and Google didn't want to have to submit to arbitration and the nature of this code was if you can do a deal with these media companies, great. We won't force you into arbitration. If you don't do a deal, then you could be forced into. So that was a way of compelling Facebook and Google to do deals. And you might ask, why should Facebook and Google be paying any money at all to these news organizations? And if you're Facebook or Google, that's very much the question you would ask. Because if you're Facebook or Google, you would say, we're the ones driving all these readers and potential subscribers and viewers to 
you know, news sites, video sites, that kind of thing. Why should we be paying anything? If, if anything, we're the ones giving news media value. What the news organizations were able to convince the Australian government of was, if, if you do a Google search right now for, say, Putin, the first thing you're going to see is a bunch of headlines from news organizations. And if you mm -hmm. click on that more news link, you're going to not just see headlines, but snippets of news. So all these news companies did deals with Facebook and Google. Some of them weren't able to do deals, especially with Facebook, because Facebook got very cranky about it about halfway through and, and basically said, we're not going to do any deals anymore. But I talked to a lot of news organizations, small and large, and most, not all, but most of them were quite happy with this deal in Australia. So Canada now has a bill that's very similar to Australia's and it stands a good chance of passing sometime this summer or fall. As you said, the UK is considering something similar. And most importantly, in terms of media market size, the United States Congress is making noises about a similar type of deal, although one that would cut out really big news organizations, anybody that uh, huh. employs more than 1,500 people. Okay, yeah, because they they don't uh, necessarily need it or... Or, or I mean, well, if you look, so look at the three big newspapers slash news mm -hmm. sites. The New York Times is doing great these days. They have yep. I don't know, 10 million subscribers. Uh, the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Last I checked, you know, his uh, checks aren't bouncing anywhere. Wall Street Journal is owned by Rupert Murdoch, you yep. know. So, so what we're looking at is more, can you support local news organizations, startups, that kind of thing. Got you. And uh, so you think, so, well, first of all, the New York Times gets about 20 million, it's estimated, from Facebook right now. Wall Street Journal gets about 10 million. Right. So they have, the, the big ones have these kind of back office sort of deals That's a lot of true. times with yeah. the platforms. Um, the Wall Street Journal actually just reported that Facebook's thinking about rethinking all of these deals and dropping them. Do you think that means that they're more likely to do a deal or the legislation, or that means preempting the red legislation, or this is just the new mm -hmm. normal that Facebook and Google do not want to, Facebook doesn't want to pay out to new big yeah. news publishers. I think it's important to distinguish Facebook and, and Google when it comes to news. Um, pretty much every step Facebook has shown over the last few years has been we want to get out of the, the, the uh, news business. Yes, they've done some deals with some news organizations. They have some charitable donations they made to various initiatives to help support news. But they really, they really want to wash them, their hands of it overall. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. their, that's their kind of underlying strategy. That's certainly the impression I got from talking to people in Australia and their dealings with them. Google, on yeah. the other hand, sees... Uh, Google has much more ambitious programs to support journalism. You can say they're just a cynical way of trying to avoid regulation, or you can say it's a it's an honest to goodness way of supporting journalism. More importantly, they're a lot more dependent on news um, because when people search on Google, yeah, sometimes yep. for a pair of sneakers, and they don't care about Ukraine. But a lot of times, people do go to Google to learn what's going on with COVID, what's going on with the flood in Yellowstone, what's going on with the drought in Africa, that kind of thing. For Google, it's important for them to be able to surface credible news because if all their service is a bunch of crap, 
people aren't going to go to Google as much. That's so interesting. And so from what you learned, because if in Australia, they are already paying out, it's estimated $150 million to news organizations in Australia. I mean, in the US, it would be like a much bigger number. Is that something that is could actually happen? Do you think there's lawmakers behind that in the U.S. that would want that to happen? That's a really good question. If you just extrapolated that $150 million to the U.S. market, it'd be a couple billion dollars a year. Now, for Facebook and Google, it's not a huge amount of money, but, you know, if they start doing that all over the world, now we're talking a significant amount of money. Just enough of the fact they don't want to be doing individual deals with every little website and, and, and and newspaper and TV station. It's yeah. very time-consuming and it's kind of exhausting. The U.S. is quite different from Australia. Australia has a very heavily concentrated media market, not just Murdoch, but two other companies called Nine and Seven. The U.S. obviously has some really big players, but you don't have the level of concentration. You also have in the U.S. Congress, um, especially if we end up with a GOP-controlled house and maybe Senate, which seems increasingly likely every day that gas is over $5 a gallon, where Congress people's uh, c- concern about Facebook and Google tends to be more around their allegations that their viewpoints are being censored or taken off, that Biden wasn't available during the election. Yep. They don't care quite that much about, oh, I have a local paper in Ohio and, and it's uh, about to go under. It doesn't seem to be that big on the radar of most Republican Congress people. I wanted to also talk to you about, you've written a lot about the whole libel and defamation lawsuits we've seen up the past few years, Sarah Palin's lawsuit against New York Times, Mm -hmm. Project Veritas, a lot of things. Uh, It looks like a lot of these things too are like, um, lawsuits that the plaintiff probably won't likely win. What does this mean for journalism? What can we learn from them? Let's start with the fact that uh, journalists in the United States enjoy tremendous latitude to write or say or or, or do whatever they want about public figures. For a mm-hmm. public figure to be able to successfully sue a reporter, they have to show what's called actual malice and or the reckless disregard of the truth. And those are really hard things to prove. So if, if you just screw something up in a story that you're writing about Joe Biden or Donald Trump and you quickly correct that error, it's almost impossible to win a lawsuit over that. Um, and, I, and I'm talking really about public figures, people, you know, politicians, actors mm-hmm. and actresses, journalists, <laughs> you know, people like that. Um, and we've seen from a couple of recent lawsuits and you and your, your listeners are probably aware of the one that, that Sarah Palin filed against the New York Times over error that the Times put into an, an editorial. That suit went through gazillions of hearings and motions and depositions, finally went to trial in January and February, and she she got her clock cleaned. Both mm-hmm. the judge dismissed it and the jury decided that she uh, had no case whatsoever. But let's keep in mind a couple of things. First of all, the New York Times and or its insurance company paid millions of dollars, not to Sarah Palin, but to their lawyers. I got a lot of the court file here in my office, and it's like that thick, you know. For the New York Times, okay, no big deal. If you're, you know, the local newspaper in Colorado Springs or Sioux City, Iowa, or something like that, and somebody sues you, you don't have four or five million dollars around to go with a protracted lawsuit. Just the matter of filing a lawsuit can have a real detrimental effect on 
news organization. And that comes the also from how uh, Peter Thiel, like, basically took out Gawker. Exactly, exactly. Well, they didn't just file it, but they actually won the case, got a big judgment. So between the legal fees and the judgment, that was the end of Gawker. Now there's a new version of Gawker, but it's, but it's certainly not the old one. So there's just the very fact of filing these. The other thing I think we have to keep in mind is a couple of Supreme Court justices, um, particularly Clarence Thomas, have said or have have indicated that the protections that American journalists have right now in terms of covering public figures, those need to be scaled back. That it's, that, that it's gotten too crazy, that uh, journalists are taking advantage of it, and that even public figures have a right to protect their reputation. And given how the law is written, it's impossible for them to do that. Yeah, and you have um, certain, certain tougher laws in places like France, too, right, in terms of privacy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's privacy things in Europe. Uh, in the United Kingdom, um, the libel laws there are much tougher. And certainly in a lot of countries like China or even Singapore, what some yeah. people would say is good, that journalists need to be held on a, on a tighter leash. And tougher libel laws would mean that they wouldn't run so many terrible stories or something along those lines. But we have to be very careful about how how that would uh, start to play out, yeah. Yeah, because then you have the risk of just anyone who has a, a bunch of money, a lot of celebrities, right. a lot of rich people like Peter Thiel can just sort of yeah. say, ah, I don't like this, and you can just start suing right. people. Right, right. And there is legislation called the SLAP, S-L-A-P-P, I won't go into the whole thing, that's designed to prevent people from doing that, but it's unevenly applied. Every state has their own version. Some states don't have it at all. So I think this is something that we really need to keep an eye on in the next couple of years. So they prevent it how? Let me caution you. I'm not a lawyer, so nobody <laughs> should listen to what I'm saying and then say, well, Kristen said that, so I can go and run this story. Please consult. <laughs> hey, I'm your, not liable your, either. You're your own lawyer. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, you know, we both have our degree from <laughs> the Twitter University of, of Law. So, um, but um, but my understanding is there is legislation. My understanding about how the legislation works is it's designed to prevent a frivolous lawsuit. In other words, a lawsuit that's been filed just to kind of screw over a news organization. They, they'll, they'll just make their lives hell. They'll cost them a lot of money and win or lose. And and if you're a billionaire and you want to sue a small newspaper. Well, you know, that can basically close that newspaper, even if you have a, a frivolous suit. Yeah, it's it's a danger on that side. And then there's the other potentially kind of valid uh, uh, discussion of where we should draw the line in terms of people's privacy right. or that type of right. Uh, right. Real libel or defamation. Right. Um, so is there going to be, so we're living in sort of a new era where it's more likely that people are kind of suing news organizations than so what you have, what you have, number one, is you have very, for example, the Sarah Palin lawsuit. I mean, Sarah Palin, lover or hater, shouldn't have enough money to have been able to pay all the legal fees for a lawsuit that was filed back in, I think, 2017 or 2018 and came to trial in 2022 and she yeah. had very good uh, attorneys this thing went through appeals mm -hmm. and hearings and motions i mean somebody was financing that in the same way that peter thiel financed that that suit against gawker so i think we have to be very careful that 
powerful people with a lot of money are going to be backing lawsuits that are designed to either put news organizations out of business altogether or to keep them from prying into things that the public really needs to know. That really concerning thing. Yeah. And we have no way to find out who financed Sarah Palin's lawsuit. None that I'm aware of. I mean, you know, you could secretly finance a lawsuit and you don't have to declare it. It isn't like a contribution to a campaign or anything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. If you think about your own podcast, you know, suppose I said something libelous here and you put it on. Well, you could be liable for that as much as I am. And I don't know how many. No, I got the, I got the, I do this from my own home. Defense. Oh, right. <laughs> right. You're not getting any money from me. This is like, right. Right. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing, talking about just interviewing in general, you've written a bit about softball questions and how they aren't necessarily bad, but how they're also bad too. Uh, Tell us about that. And what's the best way to ask questions to make, to get the best answers? It depends on, you know, I I teach this, you know, I teach interviewing skills in at Columbia Journalism School. And I'm always amazed by how, uh, how our students deal with the people who don't have a lot of experience, but oftentimes they have a, a really good sixth sense about it. Look at mm. a lot of doing an interview, and, and you know this, Alex, from your own work, is based on who is the person that you're that you're interviewing, and and how are you going to shape your uh, questions to elicit the best possible information. And with Trump, sometimes it was asking a really easy question, you know, <laughs> and he, he just blurt something out. And I think partly because he didn't feel he didn't have his hunches up. He didn't have the defenses up as much. And he would sometimes be even more candid during a softball interview. And that's why I did do one piece about in defense of the softball interview. Because sometimes the softball interview is actually a way to get a person to feel a lot more open. They don't feel like I have to clam up and and only give you sound bites. That said, there are real limits to softball interviews. If if you're doing a tough investigative piece, whether you're doing it on video or or face-to-face or something like that, you have to ask hard questions and you have to kind of figure out what's the best part of the interview in which to ask that question. Now, am I going to phrase it? But what you really want is you want that person to give you the best possible answer to the thing that you're trying to elicit. That's true. If you're a psychiatrist, if you're a homicide detective, if you're a priest or a rabbi, look at everybody has their own kind of interviewing skills and Really good interviewers know that the same technique doesn't work for uh, each person. What's the best technique that you would say are types of techniques that you can think about when you're interviewing someone who's really tight-lipped, who's not really mm-hmm. so much like Trump? What I find is get them to start talking about something that they're uh, comfortable with. And this is not a trick. This is, you know, I think anytime, you know, unless you've done a lot of interviews before, anytime you're being interviewed by journalists, you feel a little like, I better be really careful about every single thing that I say. You try to ask them some pretty open-ended questions. Um, you know, how is employment, how is unemployment affecting your family or something along those lines? And then it's really important to listen to what people are telling you. Some journalists come into an interview and they That's have like tough. a legal pad with, with like with like eight questions. 
And during the third answer, the guy could say, and, and then I committed 18 homicides in Alberta, Canada in 1974. Very interesting. Now, tell us, what's your favorite color of car? You know, you have to really listen to what people are telling you and be willing to adjust your questions, either the tone or the content, based on what what they're saying. A lot of journalists kind of fail to do that. Yeah, that's tough. That's tougher than asking softball questions, which good news is is it can be useful. Right, exactly, exactly. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. You can find Bill on Twitter, B. Gruskin, or find him at uh, his articles at the Columbian Journalism Review. Bill, thanks so much for joining Media Jungle. Alex, thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. By the way, we also are a video podcast where you can see extra memes, charts, visuals about the segments. So you can find that on YouTube or subscribe to our Substack newsletter for exclusive updates. And thank you so much for listening. See you next week.